All right, praise the Lord. Thank you guys so much for joining us. You know, technically, it's not our New Year's Day service. It's our New Year's Eve uh, service. So the first Sunday of the year is going to be next, next week. But so glad you guys came to join us. Uh, open up your Bibles to Jonah 1, 1 through 15. So Jonah 1, 1 through 15. Excited to wind down this year and this brief Advent series today. And I'm excited to have people returning from their holiday, their breaks, um, next week. But so glad you guys were able to join us today. Thank you for joining us online as well. But if you're here in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. Jonah 1, 1 through 15. Okay, this is God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out, to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean? In other words, what are you doing, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord! Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased you, as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from his raging. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this glorious and wonderful final Sunday of the year. Thank you so much, Father, for being so faithful throughout this entire year. And now as we look ahead to a new year, Lord, may you prepare our hearts with faith. May you, Father God, fix our eyes upon your will and your purpose for this body, for this church in the new year. Uh, We thank you, Father, for those who came today. Be with those who are still away, Father, on uh, winter break. Uh, Those who may be traveling, we pray for mercies. Uh, Thank you, Father God, for uh, those joining online. Father, may you speak your word. May you be with us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, today is the very final Sunday of 2023. We made it. And for this entire month of December, we have been journeying with Jesus on the Emmaus Road. So we're going to be winding this down very quickly today. But basically, the Emmaus Road is where Jesus met two discouraged disciples after his death and resurrection. And he took them through a Bible study of the Old Testament, showing how all of it ultimately pointed back to him. And he did that specifically so that they would be relit in their passion for Christ and be elevated again in their faith. And so Jesus took them through this Bible study in the Old Testament and he showed these disciples how he is the ultimate fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy, every Old Testament promise, how he is the one that every Old Testament shadow, and when I say shadow, I'm talking about pictures, people, events in the Old Testament, how they're all pointing to him. So this is what Jesus did on this seven-mile road that they were walking on. 
And it says in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, right? Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this is basically the Bible study that he had. And so this is what we've been doing this entire month for Advent. And so we've been looking at some key pictures of Christ in the Old Testament as well. And so, so far, we saw how Christ is the true and better Adam. Adam is not just the first person that God created, but he actually pointed to a better Adam that was coming, Jesus. We also saw how Christ is the true and better Jacob's ladder. We also saw how Christ is the true and better Moses, who leads God's people through a greater and better exodus, which is what we've all experienced when we came to faith in him. And today, we're going to see how he is the true and better Jonah. So this is how we're going to end this year. We're going to look at Jesus as the true and better Jonah. But why Jonah? There are so many other pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Why the prophet Jonah? Well, first, even though Jonah is buried in the middle of your Bible, in the middle of the minor prophets, it only takes up two pages in your Bible with four chapters. So even though it's very obscure, very small, it is one of the most memorable stories in the entire Bible. And for its size, it actually gets a lot of press in the New Testament. Jesus, in fact, himself mentioned Jonah three times in the Gospels, in Matthew 12, 39 through 40, Matthew 16, verse 4, and then Luke eleven twenty nine. So we're going to look at some of these references later. But Jonah comes up a lot in the New Testament, given how short of a book it is. And by the way, for those who find the book of Jonah hard to believe, it's kind of fantastical, right? This man gets thrown into the ocean like we read, and then soon a big fish comes and swallows him, and he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish before he gets spit out onto dry land, and then he goes and obeys God. He preaches to the Ninevites. Well, for those who feel like that's kind of hard to believe, keep in mind that Jesus spoke about these events in the book of Jonah as if they were historical, and they were historical. But here's the important point. All of these references to Jonah made by Jesus makes Jonah one of the most important foreshadows of Christ in the Old Testament. So Jesus specifically points to Jonah as one of the signs of what will happen to him, of what he will be doing. So that's one reason we're looking at Jonah. But here's another reason I want to look at Jonah. It's because the book of Jonah, above everything else, is about God's great heart for the lost. And we're going to be focusing a lot on God's heart for the lost next year. So this is kind of like a bridge, bridging what we've been talking about into the topic next year, our focus and theme for next year. But Jonah's all about God and his heart for the lost. See, for a lot of people, when they hear about the book of Jonah, the first thing that comes to mind might not be that, right? If you think about the book of Jonah, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Maybe Jonah being swallowed by a big fish, right? A lot of children going up in the church hear about that. Maybe Jonah running away from God. You might even think about the little plant at the end of the book that grew up over Jonah, provided shade, and then God took it away to prove a point, right? Jonah got really mad when the plant died. Whatever it may be, other things might come into your mind, and those are all important features in the book of Jonah, but that's not the main point, though. Because the main point of the book of Jonah is God and his heart and mercy and compassion for the lost. G. Campbell Morgan once said, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God in this book. And it's true, right? We know more about the great fish than the great God that is just pulsating throughout this entire book. God is reaching out to the lost. He loves the lost. He has compassion and mercy upon the lost. And what's so surprising about the book of Jonah is who was God reaching out to? Okay, who was the lost in this book? And, and who is God reaching out to simultaneously throughout this book? Well, of course, there were the Ninevites. They were obviously lost. These are the people that God sent Jonah to preach to, and then Jonah went in the exact opposite direction. Tarshish was literally the opposite direction of Nineveh. So the Ninevites were lost. Nineveh was the biggest capital, the capital city of Assyria, where God wanted Jonah to go. But Jonah didn't want to go there because he didn't want the Assyrians to repent. They were the brutal enemy of Israel. 
So the Assyrians, that's the first group that was lost. But there was another group, the sailors that we read about. They were also lost. But these were pagan worshipers of other gods. Jonah just met them and hopped onto their boat that was going in the opposite direction. But here are these sailors. They were just doing their job, and they got caught in God's storm. But they were also lost. But then there was one more person who was lost. Take a guess. It was Jonah. Right, Jonah was also lost in this story. But Jonah was the prophet of God. He was also lost. But the very person that God wanted to use to reach the lost was himself lost. Now others in the story were lost without God, but Jonah was lost while with God, while in the church, you could say. So yes, Jonah is kind of a picture of people who are even in the church who might even say they know God and yet they are lost. And for many believers in the church, they are lost in the same way. And this lostness can show up in several ways. Like Jonah, we can also run away from God's calling on our lives, our calling to be God's witnesses. We can lack compassion for the lost. We can also become consumed by our own needs rather than the needs of the lost. And so this was Jonah. And a lot of believers today, I think, are lost in the same way. So these are all the different evidences of being lost while with God. And there are also a lot of other groups that were lost throughout this book. But thankfully, the book of Jonah has a lot to say about how God is reaching out to all of them. So this is God's heart. So we learn through this little book how God can reach the lost who are with him. At the same time, he can also reach the lost who are without him, who don't know him at all, and how God ultimately did all of that through his son, Jesus Christ. So this is what this book really is about. It is about God and his heart for the lost, reaching out to all these different groups simultaneously. So I, I just want to look at these different groups on our final Sunday. But first, I want to look at Jonah, who was lost while with God. So Jonah. So look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1. But it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And again, if you were to look at a biblical map, Tarshish is literally the opposite direction from Nineveh. <laughs> So he's going literally in the opposite direction. So he got onto a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So here something is clearly not right with Jonah. Okay, something's really wrong. Because very uh, clearly this verse or this passage is structured in a way to show us that Jonah is not just stalling. With God. He's not just trying to buy time with God, but he was literally fleeing from the presence of God. This few verses really structure, uh, is structured in a way to show that. But it says in the first part of verse 3, Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Very clear, very direct. And then there's a series of short little action phrases. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went on board. And what was all of that activity about? Well, the verse closes in the same way it opened. He was going away from the presence of the Lord. So it's very clear. The writer, whoever wrote the book of Jonah, couldn't be more clear what was going on. He literally was fleeing God. He couldn't get away from God more quickly. And as a Christian, anytime God shows up and then you run the other way, you know something is really wrong, right? Something is not right in your life. And in fact, that behavior is so strange, we have to conclude that Jonah was not just having a bad day, but he was actually lost. He was lost. Now, when I say lost, I don't mean in the same way that an unbeliever is lost, meaning unsaved. Jonah knew God. Jonah has served God for years, but he had lost his way. Even in the midst of being with the Lord, he had lost his way. He was no longer fellowshipping with God, following God, or living in his will. So yes, he was lost. But why? How did this happen? Well, in order to answer that, if you look 
further in the book, in chapter 4, verse 2. We didn't read it. But here, Jonah literally tells us why he fled from the presence of the Lord. But in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah said, This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So he's praying to God in that passage, and he literally tells us why he fled from God's presence. It's because you're so gracious, right? You're so good. So what is going on? Well, Jonah fled from God's presence because he knew God was going to be gracious and show the Ninevites mercy, compassion, and love. And he didn't like it because he thought the Ninevites were undeserving. They were wicked. They were brutal. They had invaded Israel in the past and literally destroyed Jerusalem, took captives. And history say, historians say that the Ninevites were so brutal that they took large hooks and put them through the jaw, the cheeks of the Israelites, and connected them with chains and then led them away captive. I mean, they were brutal. And then, of course, once they came to Assyria and Nineveh, they were enslaved there. Incredibly brutal people. And so Jonah said, I don't like them. And I do not want them to repent and come to faith in you. I don't want you to show them grace and mercy. So ultimately, Jonah fled from the presence of God because, yes, God was going to be gracious. But there's something else going on in his heart. But Jonah had an identity of earned righteousness. Okay, why do I say that? was because by his actions, as he was fleeing from the presence of God, he was revealing to everybody that he believed the Ninevites did not deserve God's grace and mercy, right? Like we just said. But who did? Him and the Israelites. But we do deserve it, right? See, we are the people of God. We are the Jews. And we deserve God's mercy and his grace because we are his people, But the Ninevites, they are not your people. They are wicked and they are brutal. And so in other words, we have earned it, but they have not. And so he had this sense of earned righteousness. And only people who believe they earned their paycheck get upset when others receive the same pay, although they didn't do the same work, right? So here you are, you're working very hard, you got your fair pay, and then you look over and this other guy shows up late, he's kind of goofing off, doesn't even deserve it, and then he gets the same paycheck, you get upset. Because <laughs> I earned it. I earned my pay. This was exactly the point Jesus was making in his parable in Matthew 20. We're not going to read it, but this is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. But basically, in summary, this is what he said. But he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning, around 6 a.m., to hire laborers for his vineyard. And once he found a few people who would work in his vineyard, he agreed to pay them a denarius, a day's wage. So in today's money, it'd be about $125. He agreed to pay them all $125 a day's wage, and they say, sure, we'll go. We'll gladly go and work. And then about the third hour, which is 9 a.m., he went out and got some more workers and said, hey, I'll pay you whatever is fair, come work. And they said, sure. And then it says he went out during the sixth hour. This is noon now, middle of the day. Found more laborers. He needed more people. I'll pay you something fair. Sure. They all came. He went out again in the ninth hour. This is now 3 p.m., pretty late in the day, right? He needed more workers. Hey, come. I'll pay you something fair. They say, Sure. Finally, the 11th hour, this is 5 p.m. There's only an hour left in the day to work, right? 5 p.m., he goes out, finds more workers. I'll pay you something fair, sure. They all came. And then at 6 p.m., the sun's setting, the day's over, right? No more work. So everybody lines up to receive their pay, and then the master begins to, you know, dole out the pay. And he begins with the ones who came last, and they all got a denarius. So now the people at the very back of the line, who came very first, right, at 6 a.m., they're like, oh, wow, a denarius. We're going to get probably double that, maybe triple. Because if they got that, then we're going to get way more. We've worked like, you know, 10 times longer than they have. But when they came to the front and received their pay, denarius, it was the same amount. And it says here that they were incredibly upset. And then the master replied to them, friend, am I 
doing you wrong? I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So this is exactly what was happening with Jonah. But Jonah was like the laborer who worked all day. And he believed he had earned his pay. I'm in relationship with God. I have the blessings of God. I am a Jew. I earned this. And then he got upset when God wanted to show the Ninevites, who are like the laborers who came at the very end of the day, who only worked one hour. And God wanted to show them the same grace? No way, God. In Jonah's eyes, the Jews deserved God's compassion and mercy and love. The Ninevites did not. They absolutely did not deserve it. But here's the truth. Both the Jews and the Ninevites were undeserving. Amen? Nobody deserved God's compassion and mercy and grace. And yet God wanted to be gracious to both. And so this is what Jonah did not realize. This is what made Jonah lost, although he was with God. It's because even though he had come to know God under the covenant of grace, somewhere in his walk with God, he had begun to believe that I've earned all this. Yeah, I am a prophet of the living God. All the things I have in my life is because of who I am and what I'm doing. And the moment that happened, he lost his way. Now you're just drifting, unable to follow in the will of God. Yeah, things just bother you, right? God begins to do things in your life. He's bringing challenges to sanctify you. Oh, what's going on? I'm working so hard for you, right? And so things become incredibly hard, and you don't want to be with God. This is when we begin to drift away from the Lord. In Jonah's case, he literally fled from the Lord. And so how many people in the church today are lost like Jonah? Do you believe every blessing in your life is by the grace of God? Are you okay when others who seem undeserving receive the same grace? In your heart of hearts, are you okay when people who seem undeserving, who are not doing the same things you are, but they have the same blessings. So think about everything good, beautiful, and righteous in your life. Okay, all the things that may be blessings in your life, such as your salvation, your family, your career, your health, your friends, your finances, your walk with God. How much of those things did you earn and how much of those things are from the grace of God? If you were to maybe take an inventory. Well, most of us, I think, would say, yes, my salvation is from the grace of God. I did not earn my salvation. That is God's grace. But when it comes to everything else I mentioned, you might see it a little differently, right? Me too. But there are times when we might see it a little differently. So, for example, my money. I work hard for that. You don't know, Roy. <laughs> some, some people say, you know, uh, do you have another job? Because you only work one day a week, right? <laughs> a lot of students ask me that. No, I don't work just one day a week. <laughs> I lead the whole church, right? So, anyway. But unlike me, unlike me, I'm sure you work very hard. You don't know, Roy. I wake up every morning and I work every day. I don't just work one day a week. I work every morning. I go to work. I work very hard. And I know, no doubt you probably do. And so the money I earn is mine. My family, I provide and care for my family. My family is taken care of. Why? Because I prioritize my family. Right? They're taken care of because I make sure they are. My relationships, my friendships, I've invested in them for years and years. That's why they're healthy. Because I make time for my friends, my relationships. And then, of course, my walk with God. You don't know how much I dedicate myself to read my Bible, to pray every day, to serve the Lord. There's a reason why my walk with God is where it is. So that's the attitude of a lot of believers. And then let's say you ask God to provide something something that you need, but then he doesn't, at least not immediately. And then in the meantime, look over at your neighbor, and the very thing that you've been asking God for, your neighbor, who is not nearly as dedicated as you, not nearly as deserving as you, already has that blessing from God. Yeah, how does that make you feel? Again, in your heart of hearts. Well, if you become upset... And then slowly you begin to drift from the Lord and no longer seek God and his will. Then the reason why is because you might have an identity that is based on your earned righteousness. Okay, you have built your entire walk with God. Perhaps it didn't start that way. Of course it didn't start that way. But over time you have built your entire walk with God upon this sense of I've earned it. 
I have this earned righteousness before the Lord. And for people who remain in that place, like Jonah, there will be consequences. So even in Jonah's life, when you look at, even in the short passage we read, there are consequences that he had from this sense of earned righteousness. So let me just briefly mention four. But first, he had a very dulled soul. He had a dulled soul. If you look at verses four and then five, it says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up But Jonah, hear this, had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. He's asleep. And this sleep was not your average nap. But when I read this, I kind of see the same sleep that God brought Adam into in order to take out a rib and create Eve. But I see it more as like an induced coma. And why? Well, the reason why I think this wasn't just a nap is because people who are continually trying to earn God's favor and approval, but they're falling short. And Jonah, he's no dummy. He was a prophet of God. God had used him in the past. So he knew he was not in God's will. He knew he was rebelling. He knew he had fallen short. But people who are constantly trying to earn their righteousness before God, but they're falling short, they literally become sick. I've seen this. I've seen this even in my own life in the past. But they lie in bed, unable to get up. And I think this is Jonah. But he knew he was sinning against God. He knew his behavior was not approved by God. And it crushed him. I believe it brought him depression. And he had shut down so much, he didn't even notice the storm that God had brought. The very storm that God brought to grab his attention, he was asleep through it all. So that's the first consequence of having the sense of earned righteousness. You soon begin to drift away. Okay, you're, you're upset about a lot of things. You begin to drift away from God, and then soon enough, you have a dulled soul. Okay, God no longer is able to grab your attention, even with the storm. Okay, number two, he had an externalized faith, an externalized faith. If you look at verse six, the captain came to Jonah and said, what do you mean? In other words, what are you doing, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So, so look at this. This is incredible. But here's the captain of the ship. He's a drinking, cussing, pagan captain. I'm assuming. A lot of sailors are like that. No offense if you're in the Navy, okay? But a lot of sailors are cussing, drinking, pagans. Here he is now, and then he rebukes the prophet of God for not praying. But the rebuke was useless. Why? Because Jonah did not utter a single prayer all through chapter 1. So here's a pagan cussing sailor coming going, what are you doing? Aren't you a prophet? Why don't you pray to your God? And then Jonah refuses. Does not utter a single prayer throughout chapter 1. And then Jonah had the nerve to say this in verse 9. After he was found by the crew, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. That is unbelievable. Because when I read that, I hear hypocrisy. Okay, that was hypocritical. Because if Jonah had a true fear of God, he would, have, he would not have run away in the first place, amen? But here he is going in the opposite direction. And if he had feared God at the least, if he had gone on that boat, he would have cried out to God in the midst of a storm. He would have realized his error and cried out. But because Jonah had his identity in this earned righteousness, his faith had become externalized. Okay, what I mean by that is he, because he knew he was falling short, he inevitably had to shift his focus from the, the real things on the inside, right? Such as his heart before God, the true righteousness of his soul. And then he began to focus on the things on the outside. See, it was a faith that was externalized. His walk with God was all about the things that was external. So because he had fallen short, he realized, you know, the only thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to manage the things that are outside, like my words, the things that I say. So I should at least say the right things, and I believe that's what Jonah was doing. He was at least saying the right things, right? Focusing on his external words but not focusing on the deeper things like the transformation of his inner soul, which he ultimately cannot do 
Right? He cannot do that. So this was Jonah. And by the way, this was also the Pharisees in Jesus' time, and this is why Jesus condemned them. It's because of this sense of earned righteousness, this identity and earned righteousness. Inevitably, if you have that, you're going to soon realize, oh, I don't measure up. I fall short. But the things that I can control are the things on the outside. So the way I look when I come to church, the things that I say when I'm talking to other believers, okay, the way I carry my Bible, I mean, these are all just external. Maybe I'll sign up for a team and kind of do things at church. But these are all external things. And God says you should do those things and yet don't neglect the inner things. Amen? But Jonah had externalized everything. And then third, here's another consequence of having an identity and earn righteousness. He minimized sin. He minimized sin. But the first chapter of Jonah is amazing in how positively it portrays the pagan sailors in contrast to Jonah, the prophet of God. But this is amazing. But more than Jonah, the pagan sailors are the ones who understood the seriousness of Jonah's sin. So look at verse 10. It says, Then the men, these sailors, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So it's amazing, the contrast here, right? But Jonah almost seems casual about the way he talks about running away from God. So he told them. And he's like, yeah, I'm running away from God. I mean, how many of you, if you were in sin, running away from God, would tell a total stranger, hey, you know, I'm running away from God right now. Can you help me out? But that's basically what Jonah told them when he got onto the boat. You know, I'm fleeing from the Lord. He told them, you know, I need your help. Very cavalier about it. And so this casual attitude is in sharp contrast to the sailors who actually understood, what have you done? How can you flee from the presence of the Lord? And yet Jonah was able to just say, yeah, well, I am. And it all flowed from this identity of earned righteousness. So again, Jonah knew that God's standard for righteousness is perfect holiness. He's a prophet of God. He knew that. And yet he understood that he is not obtaining that. He's not able to measure up. And so all he's able to do is somehow manage sin. And so the moment you begin to manage sin, and managing sin will ultimately lead to minimizing sin. It always does. You first begin to manage it, and then it eventually will lead to minimizing it. So inevitably, he started to minimize his sin. He began to justify his sin. So rather than dealing with the real sin in his heart, he began to say, you know what? I'm just going to do this and you need to help me out. And so dealing with the real sin in his life became less important than earning God's approval on his terms. See, this all flowed from this identity of earned righteousness. So he minimized sin. Okay, and then here's the fourth one, the final one. Jonah's identity of earned righteousness made him cavalier towards God and God's heart. And this perhaps could be the worst of all. But Jonah 1.3, it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And then again in verse 9, he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Again, these words are surprising and they are hypocritical. And how can he directly disobey God and flee from his presence while at the same time telling people, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. How can you do both? Well, his actions and words ultimately reveal a very cavalier attitude towards God. See, if you take God seriously, if you know who he is, and there's that weightiness to your understanding of God, then you're not just going to be cavalier about that. You're not going to go around saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian while you're doing all this sin in your life. And I knew a lot of people like that as a college pastor. A lot of people saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but all the while sleeping around, right? And doing things that clearly God says not to. Well, where does that cavalier attitude come from? Well, again, it comes from that slippery slope of having your identity rooted in this kind of earned righteousness. Inevitably, you won't measure up, so then you begin to manage sin. You minimize sin. You justify your sin. And then after a while, you know what? I don't know. My walk with God, it's not all that serious. 
So this sense of earned righteousness, this identity and earned righteousness is like termites in your heart. But over time, it begins to really hollow out your heart. But it causes you to care less and less about God and less and less about his heart for the lost. And the reason is because when your entire identity is based on how well you're performing before God, the focus is going to be constantly on yourself. And this was Jonah. But an identity that is rooted in your own righteousness is going to be self-centered to the core. So when you look at Jonah, this is so clear, but he didn't care about the sailors. He definitely didn't care about the Ninevites. And ultimately, all he really cared about was himself. And that was the very point of the plan at the very end of the book. But as God caused great revival to come to Nineveh, it says Jonah was very upset about the revival. And so he walked out of the city, sat on a hill, and he just watched, right? He was upset. And then God caused his little plant to grow up over his head and provide him shade. And he got very happy because of the plant, because now he has shade, and he could like brood, right, in the cool of the shade. And then a day later, God made the plant die, and then he got very, very upset. And so God said, should I not care about the Ninevites, 100,000 people who don't know their right from their left, while you care about this plant? So very clearly, he had this utter self-centered attitude and so he was too focused on himself because his whole life had become, I am this person who is right before the Lord. And I deserve it. I have earned it. And so what about you? Right? What about us? Okay, where is your heart for the lost? And so ultimately, this all ties into us completely missing God's heart for the lost. And a lot of it does come from this identity of earned righteousness. But where is your heart for the lost? If you see a dulled soul, if you have an externalized faith, if you are minimizing sin, if you see a cavalier attitude towards God and his heart for the lost, then all of that could be a symptom that you are now performing and earning your favor before God. It will always result in this radical self-centeredness and this inability to see others and care for others. Why? Well, it's obvious. It's because you're constantly performing. It's all about what you're doing or what you're not doing, how you're measuring up, how you're not measuring up. What is God bringing into your life? How is God blessing you? You know, what do I need to change in order to get more blessing? I mean, it is always about that. And yet God gave us Jonah as an example to reveal this very thing in us and to reveal a lack of heart for the lost. So this is what God is revealing through Jonah. But that's not all. But God has also given us the sailors as an example to encourage us to have a greater heart for the lost as well. So he does both. He reveals a lack of heart for the lost. And then he reveals through the sailors an encouragement to have a greater heart for the lost. So this is what I want to look at next. But I want to look at the pagan sailors and their lostness without God. So look at verses 4 through 5. But it says, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So earlier, the first few, few verses about Jonah really revealed this identity in his earned righteousness, right? Well, in contrast, the first few verses about the sailors reveal a completely different identity. Okay, their identity was not like Jonah's identity. But their identity was based on their perceived sinfulness. Their perceived sinfulness. In other words, they saw themselves as sinful. And this, again, is very clear as you read that passage. This was their identity. So when the storm came, unlike Jonah who was asleep, the sailors were immediately afraid. Why? Because they knew they weren't blameless. They knew something was wrong because somewhere, somehow, one of us has sinned. And so they were immediately afraid of that and they were trying to figure out who has sinned. And so there must be a spiritual reason for this storm, they were saying. And so they immediately began to cry out to their different gods. These pagans, okay, look at this picture again. The pagans were having a prayer meeting while the prophet of God was asleep, right? So this couldn't be clear, this contrast. 
And again, why was that? It was because the prophet of God had the sense of this self-righteousness, his earned righteousness, while these pagans understood their sinfulness. They had their identity and their perceived sinfulness. And so the sailors, in the same way that Jonah had consequences because of his identity, the sailors also had consequences because of their own identity and their sinfulness. So let me just mention these as well. But first, here's the first consequence of them kind of seeing clearly their sinfulness, their perceived sinfulness. First, they were driven by fear. They were driven by fear. It says in Jonah 1.5, then the mariners were afraid. Okay, they were afraid. Why? Because if you come to a point in your life where you understand your sin, and these people, they didn't know the Lord, right? They didn't know the grace of God, the salvation of God. All they knew was that, yeah, yeah, something's not right. One of us is to blame. If you understand your sinfulness, and there will be fear in your life. They knew they were sinners. They had no claim to even trying to be righteous. And so the moment the storm came and they kind of discerned, okay, this might be one of the gods being angry or the God being angry, they were afraid. Okay, it's probably because of us. And so this is a good thing. And the reason is because if you're going to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, then you need to also first understand the bad news. The gospel before sharing the good news, it has bad news that you need to hear. And so it's not too hard to convince people who know that they are sinners under the judgment of God. It's not hard for them to now be open to hearing the good news that God, if you repent and turn to him, he will show you grace. But they need to first hear the bad news that they are sinners under the judgment of God. And so these sailors had that. They had this fear. You know, Chuck Colson, he was the special counsel to President Nixon, but he shared his testimony. This is exactly what happened to him. But while he was working for Nixon in the White House, he said before the Watergate scandal, he said he was very arrogant, condescending, especially to pastors who would come to visit the president. He said he would, you know, uh, introduce himself in the waiting room while they waited for the president to receive them. And he said he would just look down on them, going, look at these pastors, these pathetic people, right? Trying to, you know, get the favor of the president. And, and, and he had this kind of arrogant attitude, but then he said after he was arrested because of the scandal and thrown into prison, he became humbled. He said in that moment, he realized, I am a sinner. He no longer had any identity in his righteousness because he had none. And that was when his heart swung open to the gospel of Christ. Okay, that's when he became a believer. So this is the sailor, right? The, the sailors. But they equally had a heart that was open, receptive to anything Jonah might tell them. Why? Because they already knew. You know what? We're probably at fault here. One of us, they had a perceived sinfulness in their identity. And so they were wide open. So this leads to the next consequence. They were open to spiritual reality. It says in verse 5, the second part, each of them cried out to his own God. So do you see that? Again, what a contrast to the prophet. Jonah would not utter a single prayer to the true God while these pagans are crying out to every God they know. They're crying out. And again, why? Because they knew they were sinners. And because they knew that, they were the most open spiritually. They were searching. They realized their own efforts weren't cutting it. See, I don't think it's a coincidence that atheists tend to be the well-educated, the well-respected, the well-off. Okay, it's no coincidence. Okay, the people whose lives are going beautifully. Okay, these are the people who tend to be atheists. Why? Because they have all the reason to believe that my life is going so well because of my own wisdom and my own goodness. Okay, look at what I've built for myself. Look at how well my life is going. And so it's usually the well-off the ones who are well-respected, who reject God. But almost everyone we meet on the streets, they're very open to God. It's very, it's very rare to meet an atheist on the streets. You know, lately we've been going out into the streets once a month for our new ministry, and almost inevitably, everyone we meet, they have some faith in God. They're open very spiritually, if not outright Christian. A lot of them are outright Christian. But this is... The identity of the sailors. Okay, they already knew they were sinners, and so they were open. They were crying out to their gods. 
And so you see these clear benefits, right, of this identity. And then let me just mention two more. But the sailors were also sensitive to judgment. Okay, Jonah 1.7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So again, because they had this identity of perceived sinfulness, they were open to spiritual things, crying out to their different gods. They were also very sensitive to the judgment of their gods, if not the one true God. So they needed to find out, okay, who is at fault? Why is this judgment coming? Okay, they knew the storm was some form of judgment from God. They needed to find out why. Okay, why is there judgment upon our lives? And it's rare, you know, these days especially, it's very rare for me to talk to Christians, and they rarely even ask that question. Okay, why is God's discipline or judgment upon my life? Yeah, I rarely hear that question. It's always about blessing, blessing. Oh, God, how come you haven't blessed me? God, I'm serving you. God, I go to church. God, I read the Bible. Why aren't you blessed? I rarely hear people go, God, why are you disciplining me? Okay, is there judgment upon my life? Why is this happening? Okay, we, we fall short of even these sailors. Again, could it be because we have somewhere along the line begun to base our identity upon what we do for God rather than what he has done for us? Okay, unlike these sailors, is it because we have lost sight of our perceived sinfulness? These sailors knew. So they were very sensitive to the judgment of God. And then finally, they were very reverent to God. Again, sharp contrast to Jonah. Now, they did not have a saving, they did not have a saving faith in God, but they had a level of respect for Jonah's God. So once they found out, okay, it's not one of our gods, but it is the God of this prophet who he says is the true God. But once they found out it was Jonah's God, they acknowledged the sovereignty of this God to a degree. They even pleaded, you know, pleaded for the mercy of this God. So if you look in verse 14, they said, Oh Lord, okay, these are the pagan sailors praying, Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, Oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. Isn't that amazing? Somewhere. Okay, because they, they just knew who they were. They were under some kind of a judgment by this God. They were just open. Okay, we acknowledge that you are sovereign to, to a degree. And they pled for his mercy. Oh God, please don't put this man's blood on us if we throw him overboard. Please have mercy on us. So this is, I believe, such an encouraging picture of the non-believer that are walking all around us, out there. Now, I want to be careful at this point. I don't want to overgeneralize. Not all Christians we meet are going to be like this, of course. But many are. Many are. Okay, more than the believers in church. But they have lived through life. They have faced a lot of sin and brokenness in their lives, and they just know. You know, I've talked to even family members who aren't believers, and I'll invite them to church, and they'll say things like, oh, Roy, you know, I, 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 I can't go to church right now. It's because I'm paying my dues, right? I've messed up too much in my life and, and I gotta just kind of get through this time of suffering and pay my dues before I do anything like go to church. Now, that's a wrong idea, right? That's not theologically correct. It's because you've messed up, you should come to church. But they're open though, right? A person like that, they're very open. They'll be open to hearing the good news. Okay, they have a perceived understanding of their sinfulness, and so a lot of non-believers around us are like that, and we should be encouraged by that. And next year, as we move into uh, talking about being a witness, we're going to talk a lot more about how we can bring the gospel to the people around us. But these were the sailors. So look at the contrast between the pagan sailors and Jonah. Okay, look at the sharp contrast. The pagan sailors pray several times. Jonah did not pray even once in the first chapter. Even when he was rebuked by the captain and told to pray, he didn't pray. The sailors were fully aware of God's judgment coming in terms of the storm. I like when one person said the storm was a religious problem. It was. This was not a natural storm. It was a religious problem. But Jonah was asleep in the storm, in God's judgment. The sailors fully appreciated the seriousness of Jonah's life while Jonah did not care at all about the sailors' lives. Another contrast. The sailors understood the seriousness of a life sacrifice to stop God's judgment. Jonah seemed nonchalant about it. 
The sailors were moved and in awe of God's power. Jonah merely knew about God's power. He merely just spoke about it. It didn't seem to affect him. So ultimately, Jonah was looking for a salvation from within himself while the sailors were looking for a salvation outside of themselves. Okay, that's the big difference. Okay, that's the difference between a person who has this identity rooted in, yes, I've earned my way. I'm righteous. I have God's favor because of X, Y, Z versus a person who says, no, I'm just a sinner. I might not even know where the real answers are. I don't even know the real God if there is a God, but I know who I am. I've messed up. I'm a sinner. See, that person is going to look for salvation outside. The other person from within. But here's the good news, brothers and sisters. Regardless of who you are, regardless of how people are lost, God was reaching out to all of them. Amen? This is the story of Jonah. But his grace was reaching out to all of them. And he wanted to show all of them an unearned salvation. And this brings us to the final point. But Jesus Christ, the true sacrifice of God. But Christ is the one who offers us an unearned salvation. Amen? And everybody around. But simultaneously, all throughout this story, God was reaching out to the lost with the same unearned salvation. So look at verses 15 through 17. So these sailors picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea immediately ceased from his raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These pagans were worshiping God. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So here, please notice, these sailors weren't saved by their religion, right? They didn't get saved because they were praying to their gods, all their false gods. Nor were they saved by their works, because earlier in the passage, they started dumping cargo overboard, right? Thinking that that would save them. Let's throw everything overboard. Maybe it'll, you know, level the ship. They weren't saved by their religion or their works. But they were only saved by what? The sacrifice of one man. And they didn't even want to do it. It's like, oh God, please don't hold this man's blood on us. But we're going to throw him overboard. Because the prophet himself said this is the only thing that's going to stop the storm. And so it was only the sacrifice of one man's life that brought them salvation. And so what is that? That is an unearned salvation. So the sailors clearly knew that. And afterwards, what did they do? They worshipped. They worshipped. And so it was an unearned salvation on the sailors' part, but it was an utterly costly sacrifice on Jonah's part. And so we're beginning to see already the salvation that God brings, the only true salvation. It is an unearned, costly sacrifice of one man's life. But later in the story, Jonah also received an unearned salvation because the fish came. So after he was thrown overboard, he began to sink deep into the dark waters of the sea. I mean, he was gone. He was as good as dead. And then suddenly a large fish came. It could have been a whale. The Bible says fish, so I'm going to just call it a fish. But a fish came and swallowed up Jonah. And I like how one Bible scholar put it. The fish stands for the amazing grace of Yahweh. Why? Because which, the fish that came down to where he was, eventually lifted him to new life, right? So this fish was a picture of God's amazing grace. And so what had looked like a bad situation, so here's Jonah sinking to the depths of the sea. He's as good as dead. And then a big fish comes and swallows him. Now he's completely dead, you would assume. So what went from bad to worse ended up becoming the ultimate grace of God at work ultimately bringing Jonah to new life. So again, now you're beginning to see what this unearned salvation looks like. God works in mysterious ways. What looks like the worst, something that went from bad to worse, ends up becoming the greatest salvation. So Jonah received the grace of God in the belly of the fish. Jonah was transformed back to God in the belly of the fish. He received grace at his lowest point. So what is that? That's unearned salvation. That also is unearned salvation. And then finally, there's one more picture of unearned salvation, the Ninevites. So after Jonah was rescued by the fish, that's what was happening. He got rescued three days and three nights in the belly. He got transformed, became a worshiper again, got spit back out onto the dry land. Then Jonah eventually, grudgingly, went to Nineveh, preached God's word, 
Everybody responded, and then this is what it says, Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, so they all repented. They all began to cry out to God. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster, and he has said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. So that also was an honor and salvation. They merely heard the word of God, and they responded. So do you see this beautiful picture of God's salvation that begins to form throughout this book? Okay, the salvation came because there was the sacrifice of one man's life thrown into the sea. And by the way, the sea is a picture of the masses, all the peoples of the earth. Oftentimes, the ocean in the Bible represents humanity. Okay, Jonah was thrown into the violence of the sea, okay, into the mass of humanity. And then through that sacrifice... The worst thing happened, but then that turned into the greatest grace. And then finally, because they just simply heard the word, the word of God's grace, they responded and then salvation. So ultimately, what does this all point to? Well, we come back to where we began. But it all points to God's heart for the lost, which is the main message of this book. So whether people are like Jonah, lost while in the church with God, basing their identity completely on their earned righteousness, or whether people are lost like the sailors, lost without God, completely unaware of the real God, and yet they are spiritually open because they knew they're sinners. Or maybe the majority of the people are like the Ninevites who are living in sin without any care for God, sending up to high heaven. And yet God sovereignly opens their hearts to respond to his word. Okay, whatever group people are in, whatever group we are in, God is able to reach every single one that is lost. And ultimately, the greatest expression of his grace that reaches all types of people is found in who? Jesus, which is who Jonah ultimately points to. And so we're coming to a close, but Jesus is the true and better Jonah. But Jesus himself said in Matthew 12, 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus made a direct connection. You want to know what Jonah's story is really about? Him being in the belly of the fish, which really happened? But you know what that really pointed to? Me going into the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And then in Matthew 16, 4, he actually called that a sign to a sinful generation. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it. See, they want to see miracles, but you're not going to see a miracle. But rather, you're going to receive something else. You're going to see the sign of Jonah. Except for the sign of Jonah, you'll see that. And the implication there is this sign is both a judgment on those who won't believe, but it's also a sign of salvation to those who will believe. He's saying to a sinful generation, you want miracles? You're not going to see miracles. But what you're going to get instead is the sign of Jonah. Okay, what is that? Well, again, that is Jesus. In the same way Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, Jesus will go into the belly of the earth after he dies for three days and three nights. In the same way that Jonah went into the belly of the fish and was as good as dead and then came back to life when the fish spit him out, Jesus, in the same way, went down into literal death. He was buried, went into the belly of the earth, buried for our sins, and then he literally came back to life for our justification. In other words, to prove that we are justified, forgiven. He said, that's the only sign you're going to get. Okay, I'm going to die and rise again. And for those who don't believe it, this is going to be a judgment to you. But for those who believe, it'll be a salvation to you. So this is what Jesus pointed to. He's saying, I am the true and better Jonah. And he indeed is the true and better Jonah because unlike Jonah who was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights because of rebellion to God, Jesus went into the belly of the earth. Why? Because of his submission to God the Father. He did it out of love. He wasn't running away from God. He actually plunged himself into God's will. Even with tears and blood streaming from his forehead, he plunged himself into God's will. Unlike Jonah, who experienced God's salvation and grace only for himself in the belly of the fish, when Jesus went into the belly of the earth, he received salvation and grace for the whole world so that we can all experience it now. And so ultimately, Jesus is the true and better Jonah. And the moment you begin to understand that and you receive that 
it's going to begin to melt away all these other things. Your self-righteousness, your sense of, oh, I deserve this, right? Don't you see what I'm doing, God? Why aren't you blessing me in the same way? It'll just melt all of that. It'll heal you of your sinfulness as well. The things that we know are broken, that we're not right with God, it'll simultaneously begin to reverse and heal all of that. So whether you are lost while with God or lost without God, God will reach you. See, it's the, it's the one Savior and His one salvation. He will reach everybody. You know, I remember hearing, um, actually I read it, but Richard Lovelace, who was a professor uh, seminary on the East Coast, but I remember he wrote this one time, but he said, you know, um, as I taught over the years, there was one thing that I noticed would bring revival to whoever would attend my class and, and, and also in the churches that he preached. But he said it was the gospel and the grace and justification that Jesus offered in the gospel. He said that just brought revival. Whether you are far from God, deep in sin, or whether you are a pompous, self-righteous, religious person, God was able to reach both. But it brought revival. And so I believe this is what God is pointing to throughout this book. But he wants us to also understand this grace, be gripped by it, let it melt your heart, amen? Let it melt your heart, and once it does, you're going to be his witnesses to the world, amen? And we're going to start next week, we're going to start to hear a lot more about that. So let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's bow our heads. But God is a good God, and he does want to reveal his grace to us. He does want to show us who he is once again. I know this is probably basic to most of you, a lot of you. But it's got to become a reality. The unmerited salvation, the justification of God, that he has freed us from all condemnation, his wrath upon our sin, his judgment upon our sin, all of it is gone as a free gift of his grace because of what Jesus did. That needs to grip your heart again. And really, that's the only way we're going to become true witnesses. I I don't see any other way. It's not going to be me like forcing people know, yelling at people, you need to do this to be a good Christian. You need to be a witness. No, it needs to be the grace of God melting your heart. So let's just come before the Lord uh, on this last Sunday, but, but let's just ask God, God, please. Help me to receive your grace again. Help me to understand your grace again. what to be honest for some of us we might have to go down to the depths like Jonah before we experience his grace but even if you feel like you're sinking right now maybe you're already there maybe things are very dark I want you to have hope because when things go from bad to worse that is when God's grace does his greatest work just like the cross, that is when his grace does this greatest work. So let's just come before him right now. Let's ask God to reveal his grace again. You can even pray and ask God, help me to experience your grace again. And then we want to share it. Okay, we want to be a church that is a witness want to be witnesses. That is pretty much our entire focus for next year. You're going to hear more about it. But let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's, Let's begin to pray and ask God to do that.
last time your heart was melted by the grace of God. All the apathy, the hardness, maybe even rebellion, melted down by the grace of God. That Jesus, you laid down your life for me. While I was a sinner, you laid down your life for me. and ask that you would please, oh God, for those who have just drifted away from that truth and maybe our walks with you have become about a lot of other things, especially about what I'm doing and what I'm not doing and how well I'm performing before you in order to get XYZ, whatever it may be, Lord. If we have drifted, then Lord God, bring us back. Bring us to that pure message of your grace, that Lord Jesus, for anyone who humbles themselves and come to you, Lord, you will pour out grace. You will show abundant grace. And so Lord God, thank you for the message of Jonah. Thank you for the picture of Jonah. One man who was fleeing from your presence, and yet, Lord, because let there be revival. So, Lord God, we thank you so much. We give you all the glory as we end this final Sunday of 2023. We look ahead, Father, to what you're going to do in the new year. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's rise for final worship.